Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25. I know it's 37 is in your bulletin as well, and uh, you can turn just your bulletin to be the easiest. But uh, we, these are the mirror passages because in, the, in the, the, the earlier chapters, God defined the, the furniture that was to be in the tabernacle and gave the command for it. And, and in the latter 30s, chapters uh, 35 and following, God uh, describes the way that furniture was made. So we're looking at uh, chapter 25. And I'll remind you of that question that, we, that I asked you last week. I said, uh, what, is that, what is that one word that would characterize the core of God's being, the one attribute that captures all of the other? And the answer was mercy. I'm glad we preached on it last week and that there's not a shower coming down on my head from this thing above me. Uh, but uh, very effectively presented to us by Austin, we said mercy is that the core of God's attributes. And we said it's captured in the Ark of the Covenant, that box that is behind the, the holy and the holy of holies, behind that thick curtain covered in blood. And God looks down through that blood and can only see us in relationship to the law through the blood of Christ, as many as have received Him. <clears throat> but there are three other pieces of furniture in the, in the temple, tabernacle, or major pieces of furniture anyway. And I want you to think about it. I didn't have Amanda build a table this week or a menorah or anything else. Maybe she'll get to that later. But I want you to, you can envision what we need to envision today by the, the furniture, the architecture of this building. Uh, when you came into the, the courtyard of the tabernacle, that area outside of the, of the little building in the middle, there was a bronze altar down on the lower level and <clears throat> out closer to in the, in the courtyard where all the animal sacrifices were made. But as the priest made his way in closer to the Holy of Holies, he went inside a tent and the, the anteroom or the, the, the room outside of the Holy of Holies within a curtain but outside of the Holy of Holies was a menorah, a candlestick, <clears throat> seven candlesticks. Uh, in fact, on, on one post, seven lights. And then just beyond the candle, the candelabra, the menorah, was a table, much smaller than this one, but a table. And then, of course, the Holy of Holies beyond that. And the question this week before we look at the text is, what do those four pieces of furniture together tell us about the grace of God? What is the grace of God communicated to us by means of those four pieces of furniture, the altar, the menorah, the table, and the Holy of Holies. Well, let's look for it. Beginning in chapter 25, verses 23 and 30, there on the right hand of your page in your bulletin. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make molding of gold around it, and you shall make a rim around it 
a handbreadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim, and you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. <clears throat> oh Lord, would you take this obscure passage of Scripture and, and from it, as you have always done through the book of Exodus, from this passage, would you point us to Jesus? It's in his name we pray, God's people said together, amen. When Jackie and I were in college, we worked for a summer in Holland for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. He was hosting a, a conference for itinerant evangelists. Evangelists from all over the world uh, came, 7,500 or so came to Holland, to Amsterdam uh, in the Netherlands to be trained and to be sharpened in their skills as those who were sharing the gospel in their respective lands. And we just went there as college students to serve. And my job was to drive speakers to their to their, uh, their, the places where they were speaking. These were famous people. These were important people. These were people like Bill Bright and George Hamilton IV, and, and, uh, and, and, and they entrusted that to an 18-year-old kid. It was, it was dangerous. Don't let it affect your giving to the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. I'm sure they've become more discerning since then. But that was my job. It was, it was really fun. And... Um, my favorite, my favorite passenger was Roy Gustafson. He was an associate evangelist with the association, just as Lane Adams, one of the past pastors here, was an associate evangelist with the Billy Graham Association. Roy Gustafson was a, was a dynamic Bible teacher, and he had a contagious sense of humor. He was very winsome keen insight into Scripture, and one of my colleagues on one occasion took Dr. Gustafson to The Hague. They not only spoke in Amsterdam, they spoke in, in uh, outlying cities around Amsterdam, and <clears throat> Dr. Gustafson had an appointment at The Hague. The Hague is, uh, is uh, among other things, the, the place where International Court of Justice is, and, and uh, it's housed in a place called the Peace Palace. Not the pink palace, but the peace palace. And along with that courtroom is a very, very large library. It's up to a million volumes now. And that, that, that is the largest library of, on international law in the world. So Dr. Gustafson asked his driver to take him to the peace palace, to the library. He went up to the circulation desk, and he said, I would like to look at a book. I'm sure you have it in your collection, and it's called Peace with God by Billy Graham. And the attendant was all too eager to find this book. He looked through the card catalog under the author and the title. He couldn't find it. 
Dr. Gustafson said, would you please, ex- would you explain this library to me? What's the significance of it? He said, we, we endeavor to collect every volume ever written on the topic of peace. He said, and that's your, yes, we've been doing that since 1913, but you don't have a copy, Dr. Gustafson said, you don't have a copy of a book by the most famous minister in the world on peace that is essential to all peace. A book about the peace that alone can explain and bring true and lasting peace. You don't have that book? The attendant was a little embarrassed, and he, I, I just can't explain it. And Dr. Gustafson, with a twinkle in his eye, pulled his hand from behind his back and said, just relax, young man. I happen to bring you a copy right here. You can put it into your card catalog, put it on your shelf. Peace with God by the Reverend Billy Graham. Peace with God. The peace that is at the basis of all peace, the peace that explains all peace, the peace that will bring peace if it is ever to come. Is that true? Don't you need it? Isn't that what we're missing? Aren't we in desperate need and desire for peace? It begins with peace with God. Dr. Graham took that book and reduced it to a little track like this. I've handed out hundreds of these. Maybe you have too. And I got a whole packet of them when I ordered some more. And I have some, gave a half of them out in the first service. And you can have the rest of them in this service if you promise to give it away and explain that you're doing so so that someone can have peace with God. He reduced that book to, to this little track, which has four points to it. He said there are, there are four steps to peace with God, and all four of those steps is captured, believe it or not, in this table that we find outside the Holy of Holies. This little gold table captures all four of those steps to peace with God. I don't have a little gold table today, but you can envision it around this table that we're preparing for, for the Lord's Supper this evening. And here is the first step. The table itself, the table itself presents the first step to peace with God. By that I mean that by God making a table, He is saying He wants to have a relationship with those made in His image. That His desire, His purpose for human beings is to, so that they would experience peace and life. His purpose for every human being is to have peace and life. How does the table say that? Because a table, when God made a table, you you don't sit down at a table to have a meal with somebody who's your enemy. It, It doesn't do well for your digestion if you do anyway. You sit down at a table with your friends. And in the ancient world, as Vern Poitras, a famous Old Testament scholar said, in the ancient world, when a king had a meal together with somebody else, he was saying to that person, I want to be your friend. I am making a personal commitment to you. I am taking on a solemn responsibility to serve you and protect you as my guest. 
The table itself in a holy place made by God says to you, I am taking a personal responsibility to serve and protect you, to have a relationship with you. Your purpose, the reason I created you, is that you would know peace and life. Isn't that what Jesus came to teach? Jesus said, or Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Didn't Jesus say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, peace and life. That's the purpose of your existence. He made you to experience peace and life. And those of you who know it in Christ, you should, you and I should remember too that if that is God's desire for humanity, then it is, it should be our desire for others too. Our desire should be that they would live and that they would live eternally, enough that we would share the gospel with them. It should be that we, as much as is possible, so much as it depends on us, live at peace with all people pursuing those who have something against us or pursuing those we have something against, pursuing them in imitation of the God who desires peace and life for us. Step one is to realize that purpose. Step two is illustrated by the table's location. God created a table symbolizing that he wants to have fellowship and friendship with us. And where did he put it? He put it outside of the Holy of Holies. You can imagine that behind that cloth is the Ark of the Covenant. It's not there. Don't go looking for it. But you can imagine it's, a, it's an homage to that anyway, that, 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 that curtain that was torn in two, Holy of Holies. There was the holy place where the menorah was, where the little table was, and then behind the thicker curtain was the Holy of Holies, the, the Ark of the Covenant. This little table sat outside of that, and illustrating that, that only the high priest could go in there once a year was a dangerous thing to do because God's holiness cannot abide the presence of sin. The table's location outside of the Holy of Holies reminds us that we are separated from God by our sin. We're separated by God from the, by the sins that we commit. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the Bible says. And we have been sinned against. And that sin does damage to us as well. Some of you have been traumatized by sin. Some of you, have, have, some of you are, are separated from God and estranged from God because you think, if, how can a good God, how could a good God have allowed that to happen to me? You, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And some of us are so traumatized by the sin that has been done to us. We stay away from Him. What is the hope for such a separation? The, the, only, the only hope is, is that we need someone with infinite resources and infinite righteousness to bridge this great 
chasm, this great gulf between God and ourselves. It's God who reaches toward us, which takes us to the next point, the next step. First step is that we recognize God desires His purpose for you as a one made in His image is to have peace and life. And the second step is to realize that we are separated by God from our sin. The third step is to realize that God has made a bridge. There is this infinite chasm, as I described, between God's holiness and our sinfulness. And we can't, no matter what we do, by our good works, by our good efforts, we can't bridge that gulf. We, we already start out as a deficit, born in sin. And even our best works are corrupted in their motives. Our best works are like filthy rags. We can't bridge that gulf. So God has the infinite resources and gave His Son, the perfect God-man, to bridge that gulf. You can imagine a big chasm and a bridge built across it in the sign of a, in the image of a cross, just like that cross stands over that curtain, bridging that gap, bridging the gap between His holiness and our sinfulness. How is that communicated by the table? By the table's utensils. It's, it was set with utensils, similarly to this here with a cup and and flagons or, or jars of wine and bowls. It, it, it was a table set for a king. Now, if you were, if you were a, a, in a pagan religion of the day, a Mesopotamian religion, you would, you would look at that table and you would say, say that, that's a king's table. That's, someone has set that for their God. Because those pagan religions thought that they had to feed their gods, their, their gods got hungry, and they and they were they were divine, so they needed they needed a, a food fit for a divine king. But our God explains that He needs nothing from our hands. He doesn't need to be fed. He doesn't get thirsty. And, and, what, and what, was the, what were those utensils for anyway? Why, why those, those jars of wine and so forth? Because they, they represented sacrifice and atonement. The, the, the wine represented blood. In every animal sacrifice, there was a drink offering that went along with it. Sometimes they were just plain drink offerings that you were to, you were to pour out. And the symbol was sacrifice, atonement, and giving away of your life. Well, God doesn't need to eat or drink, and God doesn't need to atone for His own sins. So what was being symbolized by putting that wine on the table? What, what was the symbol? Who was setting that out? It wasn't that the table was being set for God because He got thirsty. It was that, the, that God had moved from out behind that that curtain in the Holy of Holies toward sinners and set the table for them and was saying to them, blood must be poured out from an innocent victim for your sin. Paul solves that mystery in the New Testament. He interprets what's going on in the Old Testament, what was being anticipated. He says, uh, as as uh, Todd was quoting Philippians 2 earlier in this service, he says, the Lord Jesus, though he was made 
though he was in the very nature God. Didn't he consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. He didn't empty himself of divinity. Didn't empty himself of any power. He poured out his life. That's what he meant by emptying himself. He poured out his life like a drink offering, like the offering that was poured out on that, on that, on that table. He poured out his life as a drink offering. We know that has to be the case because at the end of chapter 2 of Philippians 2, Paul says, so I pour out my life as a drink offering. God was saying, I'm going to bring a Savior to you someday who comes out of the holy of holies in heaven and will move toward you to pursue your peace and to bridge the gap between your sin and my holiness. And I will accomplish, I will make peace with God the judge by his poured out blood, by his life. What does that mean for us? If my understanding of God's purpose for humanity is that he wants them to have peace and life means that we must want peace and life for others, if if seeing that we are separated by God from our sin, we have to see that other people need to be forgiven of their sin too. and, and, And by seeing that God poured out himself to be reconciled to us at the price of his own blood. Then Paul explains that God has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. That's what he calls it, 2 Corinthians. He says in in Ephesians 2, I want to make one new man out of the two and unite them by the cross, killing the hostility and bringing them near to God and near to each other. That is our work too. We demonstrate the gospel objectively by the way we move toward other people. People we disagree with, people we don't like, people who have wronged us, people who are different from us. We move toward them with this same spirit of reconciliation and peace that God has come to us with. That takes us to the fourth point. The fourth step to peace with God. To have peace with God, you have to understand that God wants it for you, that you're separated from Him by sin. He's bridged the gulf in Jesus Christ. And here's the simple fourth point. It is receive it. It's a gift. It's offered to you. It's not something you earn or deserve. To as many as believed him, the Bible says, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God. It's not that you earn your way into becoming a a child of God. You, You receive this offer of grace. You receive the gift of Christ's righteousness in the place of your sin. You receive his life as a substitution for the judgment that you are due. You receive it. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Give it to me. Forgive my sins. Enable me to walk with you. 
That's the prayer of salvation. It's, 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 if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's the promise. Where do we see that in the table? The last bit of the table is that it's, it's set with bread. Not only the flagons of wine, but 12 loaves of freshly baked bread. Every day that bread was to be replenished. That bread was God reaching toward people who are estranged from him saying, I want to care for you, but the only way, I can, the, the, the only way you can benefit from my desire to make peace with you is for you to take and eat. Jesus put it all together, didn't he? In John 6, when he said, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of heaven who has come down to give life to the world. Are you thirsty? Come to me and drink, he said. He brought it all together in the Lord's Supper that we'll celebrate tonight when he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm placing my body in between the judgment of God and what is due to you. And this is the blood of the new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the many for the remission of sins. Drink from it, all of you. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's the secret to peace with God. God has done it all. He has made peace for you and with you, and he offers it, and, but you must take it. And when you've taken it, you must imitate it. That's why Jesus puts a, gives a warning that when you come to this table, and while you're on this way, on the way to the table, and you remember somebody that you are at odds with, he says, leave your gift and go and, ge- and be reconciled with that brother or sister and then come and worship me. Because you can't come to this table coming closer to Jesus without getting closer to each other. You can't come and celebrate at this table and say, and say oh, I'm so grateful for the, the peace you have made for me, one who was a rebel against you, one who was a sinner against you. But you know, Lord, it's just too much to ask me to apply the same to this other person. Peace is desired for you. You'll never have it as long as you're separated from him. Christ has provided the way through his cross and all you must do is receive it. I've been fascinated for a long time with a story that came, comes out of, the, out of World War I, sometimes called the Christmas Miracle. It occurred on Christmas Day, 1914. On the western front of World War I, you know, lots of kids, young boys were sent to that front, mostly unwillingly, Italian, French, German, British. And they, and they fought in trenches. It was a horrific method of war. They dug down in the trenches and then they, and they just shot at each other. 
Eventually, they developed mustard gas. They'd throw it in the trenches. They developed the machine gun and thousands and thousands and thousands of, of people, of men died in that kind of warfare. It was terrifying. It was horrifying. On Christmas Day, four Germans emerged from the trench. With, uh, they were unarmed, and they made their way toward the British, and they had their hands up, and they said, we, we, we come in peace. The British took them into, into custody and initially to find out what they wanted, and they said, it's Christmas Day. Don't you think it would be, it'd, it'd be appropriate for us to call a truce on Christmas Day? It's been written about, it's written about by a, 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 a captain named Halsey. He wrote his mother about it, and, and since then they've discovered actual photographs, and recently Business Insider ran an article on the, on the same thing, on the Christmas miracle. They came out of, they eventually, they all came out of their trenches. They had, they had little Christmas trees. They, they decorated them. They played soccer. They exchanged gifts. They sang Christmas carols. And it, and it continued on, on and off, for a, even into, into 1915. The higher commands of the respective sides were, were aghast. And they hated it. They, they, they tried to stop it. They couldn't stop it initially. The men did it anyway, eventually. However, with the advent of the machine gun and mustard gas and then the, then the fatalities increasing, and the increased pressure from the higher command of court-martialing and imprisonment if they engaged in this kind of truce-making, then it just eventually stopped altogether and they just went back to killing each other. Peace didn't last. It's a beautiful story for a day. But the peace didn't last. Why? Because of the powers and the respective forces insisting that there be no peace. Why do we have no peace? No peace within. Why increasingly no peace in our culture? Why at times a lack of peace in the church? Because of the forces that are against it, demonically inspired forces, economically inspired forces uh, behind social media tearing us apart, our own sinfulness, our fears, powerful forces that delight in division. And people being ground up and their relationships torn apart. What we need is a greater power. A greater power superior to the warring powers to bring peace. And we have that power. It is the power of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the power 
that Jesus himself described when he said, I came to bring you peace, not like the world gives, a peace that doesn't work, a peace that doesn't last past a day, past a year. I came to bring you true peace. In this world, you will have troubles. But I have overcome the world. Do you believe it? Do you believe that the power of Jesus Christ to bring peace is greater than all the powers that are, that are lined up against you right now? Then let us practice it. You say, I don't have the strength. You're right. Neither does your pastor. So we must pray for it. What would Reformation Day be without quoting a reformer like John Calvin? He says, when you lack hope, you pray for the Spirit to increase it. When you, when you need to awaken dormant faith, pray for God to awaken it. Pray for Him to confirm it when it is wavering. Pray for Him to strengthen your faith when you're weak. Pray for Him to resurrect your faith when it's overthrown. Pray for it. Pray for peace. That He might guard your heart and minds with it. That He might make us agents of it. And the world would not look at us anymore and say they're practical atheists. They talk about peace, but they don't live it out. But instead, they would look at us and say, we need what they have. Give us that peace in the name of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to make peace with your Father and us. And thank you for giving us that ministry of reconciliation. Make us agents of your peace by the Spirit who will empower us. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen.